0: Hey everyone, you're listening to NASA in Silicon Valley, Episode 76. I'm excited to report that the second episode of NASA in Silicon Valley Live, our brand new live video show on Twitch, will be back next Friday, January 26th at 2pm Pacific. We'll be talking all about designing robots, how they can help humans, especially NASA, with exploration, and also how to figure out the best ways for people and their robotic helpers to work together. So one of our guests for the live show, which you can catch online at twitch.tv slash NASA, will be Terry Fong. And to whet your appetite for next week, we're going to do another Throwback Thursday for you with his episode of the NASA in Silicon Valley audio podcast. Terry's in charge of the Intelligent Robotics Group here at NASA Ames. And in this episode, he talks all about designing our interactions with robots, and how he uses virtual reality for that, and even self-driving cars. So just before we unleash this conversation on you, don't forget to check out some of the other NASA podcasts, like Houston, We Have a Podcast, from the Johnson Space Center, and also Gravity Assist from NASA Headquarters. That's hosted by Jim Green, who is actually a guest on our first live video episode last week. So send us your questions and comments on your preferred social media platform. We're at the hashtag NASA Silicon Valley. And without further ado, here is Terry Fong.
1: Tell us a little bit about yourself. Tell us, uh, you know, how did you join NASA? How did you come to Silicon Valley? What brought you here?
2: Oh, well, you know, I, I joined NASA because ever since I was a kid, I wanted to, to make uh, airplanes and rockets and mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. Um, you know, NASA's always been my dream job. So, you know, I went to school. I decided, you know, I would study aeronautics. Then I uh, got into robotics and space robotics in particular. And then afterwards, you know, I landed here. It was, was it
1: was it always here in California, or so? Where did you grow up? Where... Yeah,
2: so I grew up. You know, I grew up in Chicago. I went to school in Boston. I came okay. out here um, after I got my master's degree. Mm-hmm. Uh, worked at Ames for about four years. Uh, left. Really? Yeah, left for uh, boy ten years. I get a PhD, and I ended up coming back here. Well, so. And a
1: lot of people come in as either like doctoral students or something. Did you just? apply to a job online or how, how did that happen?
2: Well, when I came here the first time, it was because I, I knew somebody here. I came here with a master's degree. Okay. And uh, I worked here for four years. And then after I left and then decided to come back, I came back because a, a good friend of mine was running the robotics group here okay. at the time and we'd always wanted to work together. So, you know, I came back here. We worked together for... Oh, I guess about three months, and he says, "Oh, guess what? Uh, I'm leaving. <laughs> Take over the <laughs> Surprise. group. <laughs> Surprise! Uh, no, but it's been great. It's been really great ever since." Uh, excellent. What were you working on when you first came on over? When I first when I first came here at that time, the robotics group was was working on several different things. Uh, part of that was was basic research in mobile robots, but uh, the thing okay. which really I, I think sort of the claim to fame of, of the group. This is back in the early '90s was okay. the use of virtual environments to really monitor, to understand what's going on with robots, to use these interactive 3D graphical environments. It could be in a a head-mounted display, it could be on a computer screen, it could be on a projected stereo display. Uh, But basically the use of interactive 3D graphics uh, to understand what's going on with robots. I came across a Oculus subreddit. It had these old
1: photos from NASA Ames, and it actually came out of a historian book of people
2: with these head-mounted displays. It was like the early stages of that. Was that
1: the kind of stuff that you were working on? That was
2: exactly it. And, you know, NASA Ames was at the forefront of... Uh, the at least one of the prior waves of virtual reality. It was fits and, and starts through the '90s. <laughs> well, you know, I, I think a lot of technology goes through waves. You, yeah, you try something, people get very excited, then they get very disillusioned because mm-hmm. it doesn't quite work out, and there are these problems, uh, and then it goes away for a while, and then it comes yeah. back again. You know, we see this over and over. Uh, you think about all the devices we use now, all of our tablets. Well, it's not just today. I mean, they've been around for a long time. Yeah, it's uh, you know, way back in the day, there was the Apple Newton. Yes, you know, uh, this was <laughs> back in the, in the late '80s, early '90s. Exactly. Uh, it didn't work out so well. Uh, I guess for Apple, the the, the next time around or next next time yeah, exactly. around worked out really well. The same thing is true, I think, for the whole area of uh, virtual reality. Uh-huh. You know, back in the '90s, there was so much excitement, uh, so much hype. Yeah. Um, you know, at that time, we really got into it uh, because we were interested in using technology like that to, to work with robots, and mm-hmm. uh, we ended up working with lots of different uh, people. There was a, a huge, you know, set of uh, these uh, these trade conferences at the time, and you know, we even started a uh, virtual reality uh, users group. You know, really? <laughs> yeah. Back in the day, you know, there used to be these user groups. Before the
1: forums. Or... Before the forums, yeah.
2: I mean, there were these, you know, they were you know sort of hobbyist, uh, you know, um, birds of a feather kind of groups. And, you know, we had one of those, and uh, it was a lot of fun. It was also really great to to see how this, at that time, you know, that time's virtual reality was, yeah. was put into place. But then, you know, a few years later, it all sort of died off, and yeah. um, part of it was that people, I think realized that the graphics weren't good enough. Uh, They were not high enough resolution. It was certainly not fast enough. The the head-mounted displays were very heavy. So there was probably latency and stuff. There was a lot of latency. So you move your head, and then sometime later, the graphics update. (laughs) So it's not really the kind of thing that makes it... It's not exactly giving you presence (laughs) or immersion. You know, the thing is, you can get presence. You know, I tell people you can get presence with an 8-bit video game. It depends on how invested in it, you know, how much you're into the game. Yeah, And as soon as you're into it, you don't notice the details like, oh, it's blocky graphics or it's very slow. It's the fact that you are really, you know, in that world.
1: Another thing that always
2: caught me off guard is when...
1: Almost like your lizard brain takes over when you're either standing on a ledge or you're doing something. And when you have that first moment of, you know, you're in a fake world, but yet your stomach is pulling like you're falling. That was when, was like oh, wow, this is neat.
2: That was the case for us back then too. you know the graphics we were using were you know they, you know, they were they were pretty poor by today's standards. but yeah. you know I'm sure 10, 15 years from now we're going to look at today's technology and we're going to say, oh, I can't believe you guys got by on that. But the thing is that you know that was a wave of virtual reality. NASA Ames was a, a real leader and at, at that time, you know, in the human Factors division, mm-hmm. we're doing lots of real sort of basic fundamental core research that has led to a lot of things we see today. Um, and the robotics group at that time was interested in using virtual reality for robots. And that was really the, the claim to fame of the group. So back, in the, uh, back yeah. in the early 90s, when we started looking at virtual environments, we were interested in trying to solve the problem of how do you allow people to operate robots when you have a very poor communication link between the human and the robot? Okay. So the idea is that if you can't send a lot of data, mm-hmm. lots of high-resolution images, uh, or 3D models or even just basic information about what's going on, instead of trying to send all this very large data across of a very small pipe, very yeah. limited bandwidth communication link, or in the case where you have a very time-delayed system, you know, instead of doing that, try to use a simulated 3D world locally, so where the human is, uh, and then you update that, and then you only send very small bits of information back and forth. Mm-hmm. So, for example, instead of trying to, to just joystick the robot, you work locally in this 3D world with the robot, and when you're satisfied that you have the commands right, only then do you send off the very you know, limited things such as, oh, go to XYZ point in space you know, or turn left. Yeah. So you operate with the robot in this, this kind of local simulated way and then based on the results of that, then you command the robot and you don't have to worry about uh, bandwidth limitations, you don't have okay. to worry about delay. It also allows you to take advantage of something that NASA does really well, which is to acquire lots of high resolution information about mm-hmm. remote environments. Yeah. Um, you know, we have these uh, satellites that orbit the moon and Mars and, and return incredibly high-resolution uh, 3D data. Mm-hmm. So, we don't need to send that information over and over and over and over again. We can build that environment once, mm-hmm. you know, a, a, as long as the environment uh, doesn't really change. And, you know, it's not like the moon and Mars change <laughs> the same way we have here on Earth. So, we can build sort of the background. Uh, okay, so, and you're sending the essential data,
1: not necessarily stuff that we already know.
2: Well, exactly. Right? So, we, so, the updates, the things that we care about sending over our, our as I said, limited communication link, you know, are only those things which change, so the, the deltas, basically, okay. and everything else, all the background, you know, the, the base environment, the 3D terrain, anything that uh, we can just model once, we model once. Yeah. And then we, you know, are, are smarter that way so we don't have to keep sending it all the time. And that was really the basis of the work that we did back in the nineties was to try to use these three D virtual worlds to allow us to better understand what's going on with the robots that are operating, you know, in faraway, difficult, hazardous environments.
1: Yeah, and I was thinking, you know, even if that small pipe became a really big pipe where you could send huge packets of data, if you're at Mars or Jupiter, you're further out there's the speed of light you're you're going to have a time delay and so does this also kind of morph into almost like artificial intelligence or even like an autonomous kind of aspect to it that you're, that you're working to work Yeah on so or?
2: one of the one of the other things that we were trying to do at that time was to make this whole you know concept work you you know you're not trying to control the robot in real time you're not trying to joystick the or control mm-hmm. it the way you might do like an RC car or today yeah. a, a drone but instead you are talking to the the robot in some sense at a, a higher level you're trying okay. to tell it go carry out this task you know so rather than me saying hey you know Matt I want you to take two steps forward turn right five degrees move yeah. forward one half step then reach your arm up exactly this high you know I might say hey Matt can you get me that cup of coffee you know yeah. it's a different level of interaction and to do that, it means that, uh, that you have to have some ability to operate autonomously. You mm-hmm. have to be capable of understanding what does it mean to get a cup of coffee and how mm-hmm. do you do that action. And so we were trying to focus on ways that would allow the robots to also act in a similar manner. So that we could, instead of having to send all these low-level, detailed, high-bandwidth yeah. uh, commands, we could send single higher-level ones, and so that gets into the the whole question of how do you make a robot more autonomous? How do you make it capable of operating independently, uh, you know, reliably, robustly, when you know you don't have the ability to control every little tiny action. So how does some of this leverage into the
1: stuff that you're working on now? I believe like NASA Ames had also done work either on rovers or different things to kind of use these concepts to actually put it in a thing that landed on, you know, that's either on Mars or on the moon or whatever, you know?
2: Yeah. So, you know, as I said, back in the 90s, we were interested in, in using virtual reality to work with robots. And at that time, virtual reality really was the things that most people think of as, as VR. The yeah. idea that you use a head-mounted display, and it's not just that it's head-mounted, but it's you know stereo display, so it looks like it's a, th- a 3D, 3D world. Yeah, yeah. it's uh, you, It tracks your head position, so as you turn your head, or as you maybe track your body, and so as you move your body, you also move in that world. Mm-hmm. Um, that was the fully immersive VR experience. And you see that today in video games. Yeah, uh, But what's interesting to us is that over the past, you know, 10, 15 years or so, we have found that working with robots that the essential is not necessarily the fully immersive, real-time, I'm sitting in this weird head-mounted thing yeah. looking around the world. But what's important is the real-time 3D representation. Of the remote environment, okay. so we still use the same software, pretty much that we did back in the '90s, to to you know take 3D information, to take robot information, and visualize it in a real-time 3D display. But we don't put that into a head-mounted display. We, I mean, we can work with this on a tablet or a laptop. So the essential thing is not the immersive experience, right. the essential thing is the 3D experience. We want to visualize the world in 3D because robots, especially planetary rovers or free-flying robots, they operate in 3D worlds. Mm-hmm. And so for us, it's not sufficient to look at a you know a text display or a 2D display. We want to look at a 3D representation of the world. Uh, so we're still working with VR from the standpoint of we display you know, a virtual robot in a world that was created from data. Uh But we don't try to put that into a VR helmet. We can. We 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 can. can. We can. But But the, the essential part, the important part, is that for us to understand what the robot's doing, whether we're just monitoring it or trying to plan what it should be doing next, is to do that with a 3D graphics display.
1: Okay, and so you've been doing a lot of the work of how that rover basically how how it has eyes and how it has and ears for that matter, and how if a rover is moving on Mars, it knows there's this rock in front of me. It maps it all out so it knows where it's going and what it's doing. The cool thing about NASA is we get to work with these neat toys and come up with these big concepts. But obviously, there's other people in the world that have an interest in this more of late, not necessarily back in the '90s. We'll talk a little bit about like what is nasa or what is nasa doing of like taking its technology and then also making it available so for other people to pick up that baton and keep working on it
2: yeah i think one one interesting thing to us is that the overall approach of using interactive real-time 3d graphics to understand what robots are doing is something that you see in many many places today, mm-hmm. uh, certainly within the robotics research community across the world, people are now using 3D graphics to understand what the robots are doing. Okay. Uh, I think one of the things that that you know we still here at Ames uh, started way back in way back in the 90s <laughs> was the idea that you could use this not just in the lab, but you could apply this to real world problems. You could okay. take robots out of the world out of the lab put them in the real world and better understand what's going on. That's one part. The other part that we've really been using over the past uh, several years is this whole notion of with these interfaces that allow you to understand what's going on with the robot, how does that allow the human to support the robot? You know, okay. this whole area of, you know, how do you team humans and robots? For me, for a long time, has been focused on the wrong thing. Yeah. You know, people have, have thought of robots uh, f- you know, for many, many, many decades now as just uh, just these tools. You know, it's like a hammer. You pick it up, you use it. Uh, you have a remotely operated uh, four-wheeled mobile robot. You just joystick it. You yeah. know? So it's basically an extension of you. It's a tool. But as robots become more autonomous, as they have the ability to function by themselves, they're not just tools. Um, mm-hmm. you know, just like our kids, you know, we start off with our the kids. They're actually kind of a tool like when they start <laughs> off young you're telling them, all, "Hey, go, you know, I want mow you the to lawn. go, yeah, mow the lawn, go do this, go do that, go do that." It's like, you know, do 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 and and but as they get older as they become more independent, uh the interaction becomes, you know, more like you and I. I mean, you know, I'm not going to sit here and tell you, "Hey, Matt, I want you to drink your coffee by picking it up in exactly. this in this this way." But instead, you know, "Hey, if you're thirsty, go ahead." <laughs> and so, the whole dynamic, the interaction becomes more of a, a peer-to-peer kind of interaction, more okay. of a partner-type interaction, where you know, we're treating each other as individuals that are self-sufficient, that can do things, that can function autonomously. And in that situation, you know the best way I can team, the best way that I can work with you is to support you when you're having problems. Yeah. So if you have a problem and you say, "Hey, eh, you know, I don't know quite how to, to to solve this." And if I have an idea of how to solve it, I'll tell you, say, "Well, why don't you try this?" And so we've been trying to apply that same philosophy to working with our robots. Okay. You know, so here at NASA Ames, for example, we've been developing a lot of robot navigation systems for a long time. Mm-hmm. You know, our planetary rovers, the the K10, the KRex, they can drive very well most of the time from point A to point B. They -hmm. look at the world, they use uh, their onboard cameras, their laser scanners to figure out what's safe and what's not safe. We've tested those robots not just here at at NASA Ames, we've taken them out to the field. We've tested on Devon Island in the Canadian Arctic. Uh, We've tested in Arizona at Black Point Lava Flow, in Washington State, uh, at Moses uh, Lake Sand Dunes. A lot of different places where we've taken them out. These are places that are planetary analogs, so they're similar in one or more ways to the Moon or Mars. And for us, it's a, a way to really you know, challenge ourselves to say, hey, can we make our systems work under more realistic conditions? But the overall approach we've had is this idea of supporting the robot in a way that we would support another human teammate. So the K-10 and K-REX rovers, even though they're very good in general terms of looking at the world, figuring out how to go from point A to point B, every once in a while, mm-hmm. every once in a while, they'll have problems. They'll yeah. get stuck. You know, they'll basically come to a point where they'll say, well, I don't know, is this an obstacle or not? Can I turn mm-hmm. left or right? And they may just sort of spin and be stuck there, and if we don't, don't do anything, they could get stuck there forever. Okay. So in those situations, the overall approach is, well, they do well most of the time, so we will only intervene, we'll only provide assistance when they get stuck. Yeah. And it's just the same way that you know I think you and I would go through the world, and you say, "Hey, I've got a problem. Can you help?" I'll help you at that time. I mean, you don't want me sitting there, you know, sitting behind you all the time telling mm-hmm. you to do X, Y, and Z. And is there some? I'd imagine there's also some advantage of letting the machine kind of work
1: itself through it, as opposed to us micromanaging and being and. and in <laughs> being a helicopter, helicopter robot overlord. <laughs> yeah,
2: or you know, or, or backseat driver. I mean, backseat. part of the advantage is that you know the robot makes uh, as much progress as it can. Uh, it reduces the workload that you and I have to go through mm-hmm. because we're not worrying all the time. Oh my god! Oh my god! What, what do I do next? But we're letting the robot carry out something by itself. Uh, in the case of having robots that are delayed because of, of the distance that there were. so that you know time delay in communications means that we can be more efficient in the way that they operate you know instead of you know looking forward and figuring out oh can I turn left or turn right and then carrying out the command and then having to wait a long period of time because of the communication delay we can just say, hey, you know, go to this far off location and the robot will make much faster progress in driving because it's not waiting for the human in this long, say, time-delayed loop because of communications. Mm-hmm. The other thing here, too, is that the, the robot being more independent is able to make sort of real-time, fast, reflexive, uh, safeguarding-type actions that we ourselves mm-hmm. couldn't do if we're sitting in the control loop. The idea that the, the robot can pick up Oh, there's a rock right in front of me right now, and I don't need to go ask Matt. Should I stop? I mean, <laughs> you know, I'll just stop. No, I need to stop. <laughs> I'll just stop, and you know, then I'll tell him, and then he can figure out whether or not that's something that we should need to worry about. It is just like, you know, as I said earlier, letting our kids become more independent. In fact, you know, I think maybe if you want to summarize it, my mission is to, to, to let my robots grow up in the same way that my kids grow up. <laughs> I want them to be independent. I want them to go off and see the world. I want them to be off, you know, doing things by themselves, but still asking me when they have problems, how you know, do, I? How do I? how do I get through this?
1: Excellent, and we'll actually have this episode out, you know, in early January. I know you're heading over to Las Vegas to the Consumer Electronics Show, and we were talking about how um, these three D environments it's awesome and great for rovers, but man, that's really good for self driving cars. So, talk a little bit about what you're going to be showing
2: off or, or talking about over at, over at CES. The things that we've been trying to do. Uh you know, here at NASA Ames and the Robotics Group, it really focused on on three core ideas. One is the use of real-time 3D graphics, you know, virtual reality type interfaces to understand what the robot's doing in the remote world. Number two, the idea the robot is more autonomous, more independent, mm-hmm. it can function by itself but sometimes we'll need help, which leads to the third thing, which is how do humans and robots team together? When do humans support the robot by providing assistance or guidance or just that little bit of information the robot needs to get through a problem? Those are things that have worked very well for us uh, with our space robots, but we've also uh, observed that it can be used in lots of other areas. And for the past year and a half, we've been working... Very closely with Nissan Research Center, Silicon Valley. It's just down the road from here, about five minutes away from NASA Ames, mm-hmm. to apply that same set of of things, those three things: 3D graphics, uh, autonomous system, you know, autonomous robotics software, and human robot teeing to autonomous vehicles to these self-driving cars that Nissan's working on. Okay. Um, I think the really fascinating thing here is that we see. Today a lot of companies uh, you know not just Nissan but because this is open source stuff so that you know this is stuff
1: that the, NASA has worked on and now it's open for any company that yeah wants I think to I mean join they, together and, so
2: so what what Nissan has been working on with us but I think this is the same thing that would apply to just about any other system out there are those those three ideas the idea you can use 3d graphics that you can have a, you know a robot or a car be mm-hmm. very autonomous but that you can use humans. To help out these systems, help when they, it along. <laughs> yeah, help help move it along uh, when there are problems is something that I think is very powerful. The whole notion of you know a team is better than an individual. Mm-hmm. Um, you know as as good as we can make robots or as good as that people might make these uh, autonomous self-driving cars. The reality is there will always be situations that are just a little bit too difficult or unexpected, mm-hmm. um, situations that you couldn't pre-plan. And those are the kinds of situations where humans are really good yeah. at figuring out. You know, the idea that if you have a planetary rover and it gets stuck and it's not clear, do you turn left? Do you turn right? Mm-hmm. Um, but with a little information, the human can say, "Oh, yeah, no, actually, you need to go straight." Um, that same approach can be applied to self-driving cars. Uh, you know, cars. You know, may have difficulty as you're approaching, as the car, for example, is approaching a construction site. You know, something that's unusual. You yeah. don't expect normally as you're driving down the road to run into a situation where the lane in front of you is blocked because there's a backhoe there. But um, as humans, we're taught, you know, we'll drive up, we'll approach it, we'll assess what the situation is using, yeah. you know, our human thoughts. Our human capability to assess unusual things, yeah, and then we'll decide. You know, in this situation, it's okay to drive on the wrong side of the road for a short period of time. Yeah, to drive around, uh, say, a construction site. It's kind of like like the robots do what they're really
1: good at, and humans do what they're good at. And I'd imagine that over time, as The as it gets perfected, that amount of human interference over time less, less and less and less, because the the machine will still learn. And but it's like that team effort, right? Do what we're good at. Yeah, (laughs) and
2: we we, we hope that that's the the kind of thing that we see in all kinds of situations. You know, I I, I've I've talked a couple of times about you know kids, and I think that when we as parents have kids, they start Mm off. There's a lot of interaction. We're doing a lot of hand holding. As they get older, we do less and less hand holding. Hopefully, yeah, you know, maybe a little bit less infrequent and in different kinds of levels. Yeah, but uh, you know, even through the rest of our lives, you know, they're not fully you know divorced from us. We're still there to lend a hand when needed. And I'm convinced that robots in the future, that self driving cars in the future, that autonomous toasters in the future, <laughs> will be like that. You know, yeah. we want them to be successful. We want them to be able to operate independently autonomously, uh, reliably, but when they have problems, you know, we want to be there to help because together we can do far more. We can be more successful than just, you know, fumbling our way through it alone. Yeah. It's almost like you're never really taking humans out of the loop. You're just
1: maybe just changing up that loop a little bit, yeah, you know, over I, time.
2: Exactly. And, you know, I think that, uh, it's been a very powerful thing for us in NASA trying to think this way, of of how do we go from using robots as tools to making them more as Mm -hmm. our partners. And part of that is because we're trying to make the systems be more productive, we're trying to achieve more complex, greater goals with the robots that we use in our missions. And part of that means we have to add more and more autonomy to our robots, more and more autonomy Mm -hmm. to our missions and i'm convinced the right way to do that is through teaming it's not yeah. just hey i'm going to make something that's so great i can just fire and forget it yeah but rather that i'm going to make something that is more capable but that means it's going to have to deal also with more complex situations yeah and things which i can't fully predict and the right way to do that is not to say hey i don't know what's going on i'm going to stop but rather <laughs> i don't know what's going on so i'm going to ask a question i'm going to ask for help and that makes sense especially
1: considering in nasa You know, when it takes months to get all of the New Horizons data back from Pluto, you have these huge time delays, which we have yet to figure out how to fix that space time continuum. Um, The robots that we're sending far out are going to need to learn to work on their own because we're not going to be able to babysit them.
2: Yeah, and and I think I think that's the the real key here. It's you know we we don't want to have to babysit our robots. Uh, I, I would I, I would think that people who are working on uh, self driving cars don't want to babysit their cars. Uh, you don't want to be, you know, the backseat driver. I mean, if think about if you have a self driving car, yeah. Part of the goal is to to make it so that you don't have to drive. Yeah. Okay. And if, you know, not driving means, oh, I'm going to just sit in the backseat and watch all the time and be the backseat driver all the time, that's really not a whole lot better than driving, yeah, right? Yeah, I-, I can imagine the anxiety levels. <laughs> right? On the other hand, if, you know, you're, you're driving a self-driving car and it tells you, hey, you know, guess what? I've been driving now for the past ten hours, but I'm a little confused here, or I'm having a little problem. The construction signs, or oh, any yeah, any matter of complication you could think any of. Any matter of complication, it's like uh, you know, it's always far better. I think you know when you go on a car trip. Like, to, Am I good? <laughs> yeah. Well, to go on a car trip, when it's, and it's not just you in the car, yeah, but you know, it's you with totally. someone else, and I, I think that you know, as we move forward and, and we have the these vehicles that are more autonomous. I like to think of them as, as really being you know our mm-hmm. co-pilot, or that we're going along with them, and it's not just us being taken for a ride, but exactly. we're going someplace together. So,
1: if anybody wants more information on autonomous systems and some of the stuff you're working on, I'm guessing nasa.gov?
2: Yeah, nasa, nasa.gov is a, is a great place. Uh, you can also take a look at uh, um, the group that I run at NASA Ames, the Intelligent Robotics Group. We also have a, a website, IRG, Intelligent okay. Robotics Group. Dot ARC Ames Research Center, dot
1: excellent and so as people see stuff coming up from CES hear more stuff about autonomous driving um, you know feel free to reach out we are actually on Twitter at NASA Ames and we are using the hashtag NASA Silicon Valley this is awesome Terry this is, this is exciting stuff
2: yeah I mean I'm just I'm, I'm thrilled to death by where we are today You know, I I just love the fact that robots are becoming more capable. I want to see them everywhere. I mean, I think the future is robots everywhere. And so (laughs) the question is, how do we make that happen sooner? And how do we make that work in a way that just makes it better for all of us? So
1: anybody who's roaming the CES floor, be (laughs) be sure to check out for Terry. Look out for Terry and, and chat him up. All right, Thanks a lot. Sure. My pleasure.